0: If you really see the big plans that God has for you, it should automatically take your focus off some of the petty stuff that bothers you on a day-to-day basis. And the reality is that God has bigger things for you than what you're staring at right in front of your face. Welcome to the Reach College Podcast with your speaker, Pastor Taylor Gaff. How many of you have been to Falls Creek? Yeah. How many of you went to Falls Creek as a student? Yeah. How many have only been to Falls Creek as a sponsor? Only. Yeah. Only. Okay, a couple of you. Okay, Grace. Okay. So, yeah, if you grew up Baptist, there's like a high probability that you went to Falls Creek at some point. Something that is... Always fun about Falls Creek, especially as a student. And this is why I asked if you had only gone as a sponsor. It's a little bit of a different perspective, but Falls Creek always has a little bit of drama. Amen. Yeah. And the reason it always has drama is because that's what high school kids do, they have drama. And so if you go, if you went as a student, you probably remember the drama that occurred when you were there. And if you've gone as a sponsor, Uh, especially if you only went as a sponsor, you probably had like this almost shock effect of like, oh man, what is this about? Why are we, why is there so much drama, right? Part of it is not just, I mean, I think that's just like teenagers natural habitat is drama, but beyond that, it's also like a week of not a lot of sleep, maybe not the greatest nutrition depends on how good your cooks are. And so there's like a lot of factors that go into that and maybe you're more prone to it or not. Uh, So this year, something happened that was interesting at Falls Creek. We had uh, a bunch of reach sponsors. Like it was a big group of us went as sponsors. Um, It was kind of cool because then you don't feel like you're just like only hanging out with children. You're also like with your friends. So it, it was a lot of fun, right? And one of the things that happened was that the sponsors that we took, because our community has grown so much, the sponsors that we took dealt with things at their level we've learned as a community how to deal with drama not just drama from high school kids but we've actually learned to deal with it at this level and and not when i say deal with it i mean like the biblical way like when stuff happens we respond with what does the word of god say and how do we how do we walk through this together and what what was cool was aj who was our last youth pastor and christian who is our our uh, current youth pastor they were there and i heard aj say at some point he goes man Christian has it so easy. There hasn't been any drama. And I was like, well, actually, there has been. It just hasn't made it up to your level because we finally have sponsors that understand how to apply God's word and handle the issue at their level. It doesn't. It doesn't need to go all the way to the youth pastor, right? And it like blew him away. He was like, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard. Because we've we've reached a point where we are not responding in just the worldly way we're taught to respond our whole lives to drama. We're actually responding with with Christian maturity. And I've watched it happen at our level in our community over and over again as people respond to the things around us that cause us problems, whether it's a legitimate crisis or somebody's being a drama queen. People have taken God's word and said, okay, but how are we supposed to respond to this? And, you know, it saves me a lot of trouble because then i'm not the sole person solving everybody's problems just like why do i have all these children right and so it's it's something really cool to see as we have grown as a community that we are responding to things not in the worldly child mentalities but in the church way that's supposed to be in theory more mature now some of you haven't only been at evergreen or Maybe you've been at Evergreen long enough that you know that that's not often or always how churches respond to these situations. It's not necessarily the default. Uh, It is something to take note of, and I, I, I don't want to make us sound like we're just perfect, we're nailing it, we're the, we're the ultimate church community. But honestly, it is something to be proud of and to, to continue to strive for that as a community we do well at these kinds of things. We handle problems in a mature way. See, in the the Bible, we're told, you know, if somebody wants to take advantage of you, go the extra mile, right? Go the extra mile for the sake of the gospel. We're told that we'll be known by our love for each other, right? That the world, because of the way they respond to drama, the way they respond to somebody taking advantage of us, that they will know us as different. They will see us as something else because of the way we treat one another. This is why it's actually a tragedy when churches don't behave this way because it does not put on display the love of christ that we're supposed to be putting on display right and so when we do church like children when we do church in a childish way in a worldly way we are ignoring that we have been bought we've been redeemed that we have been attached to to Christ's body, that we are actually the temple of the Holy Spirit, that he resides in us. And so my question for you today is, do you respond to things in your life, whether it's at church or in the secret places of your life, do you respond to things much the way the world responds to them? Or if you want to be really honest with yourself, do you respond exactly the way the world responds to things? Or does any part of the way that you respond look like it should look out of the Bible? Does the way that you respond to situations look more mature? Look like you're holding to something otherworldly? Or do you just immediately default to what we've been taught by the world our entire lives? See, we are in a series called Church Fails, and we're looking at the first letter to the Corinthians, or Corinthians B, right? Because we, we know that we, there's two letters to the Corinthians we don't have. and In this letter to the Corinthians, what we're seeing essentially is a list of don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, quit doing that, stop doing that, fix this, right? That's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. And what we're going to see today is that Paul is going to talk to them about essentially church drama, not doing it the way, not handling church drama or church situations the way we're supposed to. Now, he's not just going to apply that to the church in general, he's going to apply that to their specific lives? How are you as an individual responding to the things of this world? Are you responding in a worldly way? And are you bringing that to church? Are you the reason that there's drama at church? The reason that people are bickering and there's divisiveness? Or are you more mature? Have you reached a level of saying, no, I I try to respond to things, and it doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means this is your default. This is what you you go to to say, this is how I should be acting. See, last week, or sorry, two weeks ago, we were in chapter five, and we saw that there is a man in the church that is living a sexually immoral life. And Paul is going, I'm not even there, and I've already made the judgment that that guy has got to be, he's got to be excluded from your community. Now, what do we talk about? We talked about with church discipline is that it's not like we kick people out and we're like, don't come back. No, it's actually the point of church discipline is that we want to reconcile people to us. And so the goal is to say um, we're going to walk this road with you where we tell you, hey, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is wrong. And if we get so far down this road, we're going to assume for your good that you're not actually a Christian. So what do we do with non-Christians? We kick them out and lock the doors. No, we try to share the gospel right? And so there's this weird thing that happens in church discipline in modern times is we want to go share the gospel with non-believers, but if we do church discipline on somebody, we get all the way to the point where we're just like, get out of here. That's it. But that defeats the purpose. The purpose of church discipline is that as we walk that road, we reconcile that person, and if we don't reconcile them, then we put them over in the camp of they're not a believer, and we begin to do what we do with non-believers. We tell them about Jesus. Why? Because we want everybody, non-believers and and, you know, were believers in rebellion alike to be in the presence of the Lord, to worship him, to live their lives accordingly. So he ends this. He says, uh, don't handle things like the world internally. Do it this way. Do the church discipline route and then don't act like the world. Don't live this sexually immoral life. And And essentially, he's going to take those two concepts and he's going to expand on them in chapter six. He's going to say. We, we are supposed to be built different in the way that we act, both in the way that we handle things in our church and in the way that we live our lives in the private places. Basically, I want you to see that chapter 6 is Paul looking at the Corinthians and saying, quit having childish attitudes. Quit behaving like children. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to form the smallest law courts? Do you not know that you will judge the angels, that we will judge the angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Okay, so the first thing we see is he says, don't handle things the way the world handles them. And don't, don't default. Like, when we have arguments internally, we're supposed to handle them with each other. We're not supposed to race to the court system, right? Believers suing one another is, is absolutely off the table. That's absolutely how And that's actually what he's referring to right here. He's saying, you guys have trouble with each other, and you're racing to the civilian courts? And you're asking a judge to solve this. So you couldn't work this out yourself. You couldn't figure out how to behave and get along. Again, it's almost like a child chastisement, right? So what happens when the, when two little kids come and they're having a fight, it's like, we have to, we have to manage them. We have to, we have to like intervene. We have to go, no, no, you share that toy and you stop doing this. And Nobody likes a tattletale, right? Like we have to like walk the children through everything. But what happens if like two adults come to you and they're bickering? And they're like, solve it for me. You're like, are you serious? (laughs) Are you going to work this out yourself? And that's what he's saying. He's saying, don't act like children bickering who need to get somebody involved to fix this. Work it out. Figure it out. Be together on this thing. He says, don't solve this. He says, are you not competent to do this yourself? Like, are you not able to work these things out? We're called to this higher standard. He, he mentions this thing. He says, the saints will judge the world. And he says that we will judge the angels. And both of these are weird, weird phrases. I looked, the, the main thing I found was in Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, there's a lot of an indicator, and, and we see this in other places in the Bible as well, that we essentially will rule with Christ someday, right? That's, what, that's what's supposed to happen in heaven. We rule with Christ. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean, like, every one of us has, like, our little throne in our little castle with our little courtyard? Like, probably not, right? But it means that we essentially will manage earth with God. We'll be the caretakers of earth, the stewards of earth, and we will have authority. We're we're already supposed to have that authority. We're just busy messing it up. And the idea is that we'll finally have that authority reestablished. And I don't know that this means, the way it reads in English is that we'll, like, kind of, like, manage the angels too. I think that m- means more that we're the we are the only thing made in God's image. We will have a close relationship with God and be a part of what he's doing in eternity even more so than the angels. We will outrank them essentially. And so the, we don't necessarily need to explore the details and he doesn't give us a lot of explanation of those two phrases, but here's the bottom line. He says if we know that we're going to be a part of bigger and better things in the world to come, We can't solve the most basic disagreements among ourselves right here, right now. We have to get a judge involved like you literally couldn't handle this yourself. My question is, do you guys realize how big the things that God has for you are? Not just in the life to come, but in this life, if you really see the big plans that God has for you, it should automatically take your focus off some of the petty stuff that bothers you on the day-to-day basis because it's, it's beneath you, right? To be upset about that is, is you being petty, you being childish, you having a childish attitude, a self-centered attitude. And the reality is that God has bigger things for you than what you're staring at right in front of your face. In verse four, uh, there's, there's a little bit disagreement about verse four, the way it's translated. And I'm just going to give you both because honestly, uh, either one, it makes this makes the point well, right? So, the, the one way that it can be translated is he's saying, are you really going to use worldly judges? Why are you going to these civilian judges? Honestly, that's the way I read it when I just read it automatically. But as I studied it, uh, the, other, the alternative is he's saying essentially the least of all in the church. And some of your translations will reflect this more. Um, he's saying you could literally use as a judge your least respected members in your church because you should all be able to do this you should all be this competent right you should all know that god has bigger plans for you and therefore you can handle this situation either way makes the same point he's like fix it yourself stop being big babies with each other right stop acting out look at verse five i say this to your shame Is it so that there is not among you anyone wise who will be able to decide between this uh, between his brothers and sisters? But brother goes to law. Sorry, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Okay, so look at this. He he's he's saying, listen, it should shame you that you can't work out these petty things amongst yourself. That you literally have to go to a judge to solve these problems. It should shame you that no one in your group is mature enough to handle this. And he's talking about the church discipline process, right? See, way before there's a, a lawsuit, there should have been you appealing to your brother and sister in Christ and saying, hey, can we work this out? And then the, the second step is you bring a witness, not, remember we talked about this, we, we, it's not that we're ganging up. I don't bring my friends and they bring their friends. And we all argue about who's right and whoever can get the most people on their side wins. It's that I bring somebody to witness which one of us is talking with a harsh tone. Which one of us is not being agreeable, not, not submitting to the reality of what's in the word of God, right? The witness is just there so we can have the conversation again. It's a little bit more public, but now I can work this out with you in front of somebody and they can vouch for me that, I, you know, maybe I'm wrong. What if I what if I bring my witness home? Come here, we got to deal with this person. And we get over there and I'm like, you suck. And here's all the reasons you suck. And now my witness is like, uh you're the problem, right? Like that's the reason there's a witness, right? And so you do that, then it that doesn't work. So then you bring it to the elders, you bring it to the church, you bring it before the church. And that's where we get to make that decision about, is this person in such rebellion and sin that they might not actually know Jesus, right? But that whole process is a process of maturity. Is that a process of bickering, spreading rumors, drama, assembling teams? It's not childish, Right? He says it should embarrass you. And honestly, th- this is what I like about verse 5 and 6 is he says, you're embarrassing yourself before nonbelievers. Like when, when the church bickers out in the open in front of non believers, what do non believers do? They're like, yes, yeah, see, I told you that stuff was fake. I told you that none of that could be real because they judge Jesus by the way we act. That is devastating. That should be. You should look at the way you're acting and be like, "Am I actually hindering the gospel? Am I actually keeping people from meeting Jesus because I not only do I suck, but I suck so publicly? Like that's a problem. I should be fixing that right now. That doesn't mean we act different in private than we act in public, but it sure as heck means what I'm working on in private I keep from coming out in public, right? I don't want to embarrass the cause of Christ. And that's what he's saying. He's saying when you guys are suing each other and bickering out in the open, you're embarrassing. The gospel. Look at verse 7. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather suffer the wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves do wrong and defraud, and this to your brothers and sisters. He says, this is is basically encouraging or continuing this point. He says it should be embarrassing to you that you're bickering out in front of the world as a matter of fact, it's already a loss. Let's say the lawsuit goes your way. you've already failed because you've embarrassed the gospel so badly right and then I love this phrase, listen, we have this thing that just i don't I think that there's a lot of us that in our heads we're like, man, someday if the church is persecuted, I'll stand firm. I'll be there right and and in our minds, it's like that's the non-believers. And when the non-believers come for me, I'll do what God told me to do. And then we miss the part where we're not doing what God told us to do with our brothers and our sisters. Man, if you can't take that hit because you have a less mature brother or sister in Christ that maybe is not doing something right, if you can't take that hit from them, you're not going to do it when a non-believer comes, right? And so the, he's saying, look— you can't you can't be strong in the faith and standing up and ready to be a martyr and yet as soon as one of your brothers or sisters steps on your toes you're like this is an injustice and like now you got to freak out on them and start this whole fight and now we're back to bickering in public and embarrassing the gospel It doesn't work like that If you're not training yourself to take the hit from your brothers and sisters you're not ready to take the hit from a world that actively hates you cuz the chances are if your brother or sister hits you it's an accident Usually the people that hit me in the church, they're just not mature yet. it's like I always tell you guys the thing about like, and you know, six-year-old walks up to me in the parking lot and swings on me. I'm not like, all right, Spartan kid, here we go. <laughs> like, game on, six-year-old, right? No. I don't do that because it's a child, right? Like it, it like you don't you don't lash out at someone that's that's that that has that relationship to you, right? So the thing is. That when your brother or sister in Christ hits you, you should endeavor to say, you know what? Maybe they're having a bad day. Maybe they're struggling. Maybe, they're, maybe they've skipped their quiet times for a week. Because I know when I skip my quiet times for a week, things aren't going great, right? And if I can all of a sudden look at my brother and sister in Christ like that and go, man, I don't want to Spartan kick the six-year-old. Then I can suffer the the defrauding. I can suffer the pain of that hit for the sake of the gospel, because, again, what are we back to? I said at the beginning, we'll be known by our love for one another. If I love you so much I can take the hit, well, now I'm going to put on display the gospel instead of embarrassing the gospel. right? The, the church is not a place where, because we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, we're always going to get along. It's that when we don't get along, we don't respond the way the world does. It's because when the world doesn't get along, they sue each other. We're not supposed to do that. And, and I'm using that language. He's talking about lawsuits. But it goes all the way down the chain. We're not supposed to respond the way the world responds. That means drama, gossip, like that, it, none of that. That's all out. That's not the way mature believers respond to each other. Those are childish attitudes. See, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 is one of my, it, it literally is my favorite verse in the Bible. It's our, our, now I'm going to blank on it as soon as I start, start to quote it. It's our absolute, I'm sorry, our suffering is producing for us an absolutely in, eternal weight of glory so that we do not focus on what is seen but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Right? So what is that talking about? My focus is not on here and now. You hit me and I go, you know what? I got to suffer a little bit now because I'm producing an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. And, and, and I'm focused on the eternal things. I'm not focused on right here, right now. If I'm focused on right here, right now, I'm going to respond the way the world responds because this is all I got. You can't step on my toes here because that's it. That's what I, this is my, my bubble, right? But if I know I've got so much more coming, this isn't a big deal and I don't have to freak out about it. And then he makes it even worse. In verse eight, he says, not only are you not willing to suffer the offense, sometimes you're the offender. Sometimes you're the one going after them, causing the wrong, causing the drama, being the jerk, right? Man, we're real careful with who we pick to go with us as a witness when we're trying to do the church discipline process. Because I don't want to take somebody along to have the conversation and then find out I'm the one in the wrong, get called out. But man, we should be willing to be more concerned with being right with each other than being right over each other. I want to find right, and I want us to both stand there. Even if you were the one already standing there, and I wasn't. I want to be right with you. See, childish attitudes become childish actions. See, when we practice this selfish drama, when we worry about ourselves being hurt, we will begin to act in childish ways towards one another. Those childish actions are what embarrass the gospel. When you, if you have... I've got some nephews and nieces, and and if you've ever been around young kids, one thing you'll realize is children do not have impulse control. They don't, right? Now, the problem is some of us don't learn it, and then we're adults that don't have impulse control, right? And that's a real problem because what do do children do? They act on every urge they have. That's why we have parents because parents – are constantly trying to box their kids in. They're like, nope, don't, don't, don't do that. That's stupid. Nope, don't go that way. Right, and it gets worse when you get to like your teenage years because all of a sudden you don't have any impulse control yet, but you're an adult in your own eyes. So then your parents are really struggling because they're trying to put those same boxes around you, but you have like a driver's license and a will, and it's just <laughs> painful, <laughs> right? But the point is. As believers, have we developed a sense of spiritual impulse control? Look at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the habitually drunk, nor verbal abusers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed. But you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So look at this list. He says sinners act like this and Christians don't act like sinners because sinners don't receive the kingdom of heaven, right? What is the kingdom of heaven? It is the presence of God. And we don't carry sin into the presence of God. So that has to be washed clean, it has to be taken from you. And then he goes through this list. He says the sexually immoral, which He's going to expound upon here in a second. He says idolaters. Now, we we sometimes have this foolish—I I think that we've eradicated this culture at Evergreen, but we there's this foolish conception that, like, we don't have a problem with idols because we don't bow to, like, statues. Like, we have idols all the time, right? I recently figured out that something that I idolize is excitement, like adventure, right? I— I was in a profession where I jumped out of planes and spent time in the woods and shot guns. I was excited a lot. Like I in for every like week that that I just stayed in the office, there was a week where I jumped out of a plane. So it's like it balanced out, right? So then I take this job and I spend a lot of time sitting in an office and I spend zero time jumping out of planes. And I realized that I was really frustrated with God for for just kind of the the boringness of it like i like what i do on a daily basis but it's like there's too many weeks strung together where nothing nothing exciting happens and i was frustrated with god because he wasn't giving me this sense of excitement so you know what i did i resorted to some video games so i'm going to go on an adventure whether god wants me to or not and then i was sitting there and i'm struggling with how much i'm playing video games and why that's a problem for me and i'm reading in the bible And it's like, don't worship your cast metal image. And I was like, oh, dang it. That Xbox is a cast metal image. It's an expression of the idol in my heart that was adventure, excitement, wanting to not be bored. right? And it's like, here's the thing. The real adventure of my life should be that I'm following the Lord. That I'm infinitely finding out more about Him. That I'm diving deeper into this Word. And instead, I was replacing it with this cast image this thing that i wasn't in my house bowing to my xbox but i sure was worshiping i sure was treating that as an idol he says don't be adulterers and then we get to this word that is a hot button says homosexuals now i want to address this for in for two things in this in this context okay one is that if you go look this up You will find people just doing backflips to make this word not mean what it means. I mean everything they can to just bend it and break it and go, well, no, he's talking about this thing or he's talking about that thing. No, it's pretty plain. It's actually very generic. He uses the generic Greek word. He's just talking about same-sex unions. Okay. Now, I want to talk about this for a second. There's two things that I want you to understand about this word and why This is an issue. In our culture, it looks like this is the only sin that matters. This isn't even the emphasis of the list. This is just in there, right? It's not any worse or any better than any other sin. You don't get to go, well, at least I'm not doing that. Your sin is just as offensive to God as this one. There is not a tear system in his eyes. It is whatever separates you from him, which brings me to my second point. Why is this bad? It's not bad because you're especially evil if this is the sin you struggle with, right? It's not that I get to go, well, you know, my sin is just taking cookies from the cookie jar. Your sin is gross, right? That's not the way this works, right? And here's the reality. Your sin is always the sin that's not gross. Everyone else doesn't get your problem, and they think theirs isn't gross. Right? Everybody's sin is okay with them because we've all justified it. We've all made it okay. The reality is, this is not evil because this is an extra evil action. It's evil because it steals you from God's presence the same way that all sin does. And I'm not attacking you for struggling with this sin. I'm attacking you for your benefit of saying, I don't want you to do anything that steals you from the Lord's presence. I don't want you to wonder from the one thing that will fill you up and build you up and actually feed your soul. That's what I don't want. So we can't take this passage and beat people over the head who struggle with it. We shouldn't, but we also can't wish it away because it steals us from the Lord's presence. And I want desperately for you to avoid every sin on this list because I know that the only thing that will truly feed your soul and fill you up is the lord that's all there is so this is not something we go out of our way to be judgmental of it just fits into the long slew of things that are dangerous for us i don't want you to run with a steak knife and i don't want you to run with scissors either one is going to hurt you it doesn't matter right so then he says don't be thieves don't be greedy now i'm going to pause on that one again for a second uh you should examine in your life if your Christianity has been poisoned with the lie that the American dream is somewhere involved in that. Okay? Because we grow up in a society where we expect because we're Christians, God's just going to rain blessings on our head. And, and honestly, and I say this all the time, but if you think that's the case, you actually have ignored a lot in the Bible. Like this, like pretty much like this whole portion of it is just people having a bad time. Right? <laughs> just just people having a real bad time. So if you think that God's just gonna rain blessings on you, read, read really the first half. Okay. He says, don't be drunk, right? Don't be habitually drunk. Don't be a partier. Don't be in the frivolous lifestyle that carries you away. He says, don't be, um, Uh, a verbal abuser, are you mean? Are you mean to people? Are you hurtful? Do you attack people around you, especially when you come to church? That's wrong. That's sinful. Don't be a swindler or a cheat. And then he says, why not? First of all, you've been washed, right? That's why we do baptisms. Baptisms are symbolic of the washing that takes place in your spirit. You've been cleansed of all of these sins. You're forgiven of them, so quit acting in them. And then he gives two terms that uh, anytime these terms come up, I want to explain the difference. I know that some of you, this is repetitive. It's always good for you to hear these things and understand them. But sometimes, sometimes it could be the first time it clicks for somebody in the room. So I'm always going to pause when I get a chance and talk about the difference between justification and sanctification, what those words are. Because they're Christianese, so sometimes we get used to saying them and we just blow right past them, right? Okay, so here's the deal. Justification. Is that you have been made right with God positionally. When you're justified, that is the first time God said, You are no longer in rebellion to me, you are now with me. We're together. Your position to God has changed. Sanctification is the process by which, through your entire life, you become more and more like Christ. See, if you're being sanctified, you should be progressively looking more like Christ, the more and more you dive into this word, the more you go to church, the more that you learn who Christ is. Okay, now here's the thing. Justification is not sanctification, but it is the first time sanctification ever happens. The reason I say that is because how do we know that we've been justified? How do we know that our position has been changed? Because we experience sanctification happening over and over and over again in our life they are experientially the same thing. This is a lot of times uh, what people will struggle with. I have struggled with this is that you get saved, you get justified, you are completely apathetic and childish in your in your Christian maturity for long enough that then when you finally get serious about following Jesus, you have a sanctification moment where you experience the gospel and you grow more Christ like and you think I must have just gotten saved. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. It's really not the point. The point is Wherever it happened, you should experience growing closer to Christ over and over and over again. And the vehicle for that growth is always the same thing. It is the gospel. Okay, it will never be anything else. It will always be the gospel. And I'm really careful with this because this is the age where if you don't get this, something concrete's in your brain where you're like in your 40s going, I'm on to Christianity 2.0. Like, nope missed it. There is no Christianity 2.0. There's not the advanced course. It is the gospel over and over and over again. That's it. That's all it is and that will, that's all it will ever be. He says that you have been sanctified, you have been justified in the Lord Jesus Christ through the Lord Jesus Christ and with the Holy Spirit, right? And this is important because he's talking about behavior. Jesus work on the cross is what justifies us. What sanctifies us? That action in our growth with the Holy Spirit for our entire lives. See, in our relationship with the Holy Spirit that we've been given, we will see what Christ did on the cross being played out in our lives over and over and over again. That's why he mentions both Jesus and the Holy Spirit right here. He says we can't behave like we used to behave in all these evil ways because we're growing with the Spirit. We have this companion. We have the Spirit with us. And he's changing us. He's growing us. He's sanctifying us. The things that you act on, they will become attachments for you. They will become the things that you can't get away from. This is a thing I I think I mentioned this last week, but there's no such thing as like managing your sin, of it staying small, having like, you know, this, just this baby sin over here that's not really a threat. All sin is seeking to grow, corrupt, and eventually kill. All sin. In James, it says that each person is tempted when they are drawn away and enticed by their own evil desires. And desire, where it starts, when that is fully grown, when that has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Right. So I desired something in my flesh, I gave in, and now I'm sinning in that thing. That's what I'm acting on. So what, what do we have? desire, childish attitudes. Then I'm sinning, childish actions. And then it says, and sin gives birth to death. See, because I will become hooked. I will become pinned down by the throat, by that sin until it kills me. That is what sin is doing in our lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says this phrase that honestly, I wish I had never read this verse. It It plagues me," he says in verse eleven. "When I was a child, I did childish things, and when I became a man, I put childish things away." Right, and in context, and we'll get there. He talks about he's talking about focusing on heaven, putting aside the things of this earth, and focusing on heaven. And really, the reason that that convicts me so often, the reason that that verse plagues me, is because so often I'm acting like a child. I'm attached to things. that, that I should have put down. Not because I grew up physically and I am now a grown adult man, but because I should have matured in Christ. I shouldn't be attached to the same things I was attached to all my life because I should be so attached to the Lord. I need to put the childish attachments down. Look at verse 12 all things are permitted for me, but not all things are of benefit. All things are permitted for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So Paul, in this moment, he seems to be quoting kind of some some phrasing that they might have had. Now, something, we're not going to dive super deep into this because we'll get into it on another sermon, but let's talk about Christian liberty for a second, okay? I've told you guys that We oftentimes make this mistake of evaluating everything on the basis of sin or not sin. The problem is, there's a lot of things that are not sin that are also not wise. Right? And see, when we evaluate the decision of wise and unwise, what happens instead of how close can I get to the line without it being sin? What happens is wise makes me steer away from sin, and unwise makes me steer towards sin. And I've always told you guys, if you will focus on the wise, unwise decision, Then when you make the wise decision, you will save yourself a lot of trouble. When you make the unwise decision, the thing around the corner is always then the sin, not sin decision. It follows. You make the unwise decision, you turn the corner, and you go, okay, now how close to the line can I get? And the problem is, I don't know about you, but none of us are that good at staying on the right side of the line. We have to stay as far away from the line as we can because we have to behave in a wise manner. And what he's saying here is he's saying, listen, sure, that thing may not be sin, but does it benefit you? Is it wise to do that? And then we often stop there, but he gets to the second thing, and this is this is again upsetting, because <laughs> the, the thing that I literally have been working through, he says. It might be not sin, but I'm not going to let it dominate me. See, I I love to think in my head. Video games isn't a sin until I'm eight hours into a session, and then I'm like, yeah, but it sure is dominating me. Sure is winning. Sure is keeping me up all night, and all of a sudden, my whole next day is going to be trash. My quiet time is going to go to heck, like. All of this is going to go downhill because I let something dominate me. And I I can tell myself all day, well, it's not sinful. It doesn't matter. It's not beneficial. It's dominating. See, the Christian life isn't about... People think the Christian life is about rules. Do's and don'ts because I got to make God happy. What if I told you that this is the owner's manual for all of life? And if you behave accordingly, life is better. It just it, and I'm not talking about better than like, well, I'm going to have more money and be more comfortable. No, like I'm going to get rest when I can get rest, and I'm going to work hard and be fulfilled, and I'm going to know God and be fed. Like life has joy and meaning and purpose, all those things that we look to Instagram to give us, and it can't. So your social media. Here's the thing. It doesn't matter. Don't make the decision of sin, not sin. Make the decision of wise, unwise. What is of benefit to you? What is dominating you? Look at verse 13. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. However, God will do away with both of them. But the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord... But will also raise us up through His power. Okay. So, th- again, he he's he's using terminology that they would have been familiar with. So, like this phrase, like the food is made for stomach and the stomach for food. It's like a weird phrase. And as I studied this, it ma- it makes a lot more sense. He's he's using kind of like a slogan that they're using. Okay. But here's here's the thing. They're using this slogan to justify living in sexually immoral ways. So what they're saying is, well, why do we have a stomach if it's not to eat? Like the stomach's for food, food's for the stomach. So why do I have sex organs if they're not to do sexual things? Like they're they're clearly made for each other. Why would God give it to me if I'm not supposed to use it? Right? You see what I'm saying? They're justifying their actions by going, what's the big deal? We're sexual creatures. Why can't we live in a sexual way? Right. And and so they're they're justifying this and he's saying, okay the stomach may be made for food and food for the stomach, but the body is not made for sex. It's made for the Lord. See, sex is a gift from God. It's something that fulfills us in God, but it's not a God. It's not meant to replace God. See, and. One of the things, the next confusing part is he says God will destroy both, talking about the stomach and food. And so I read, again, I read kind of two translations for this because there's some disagreement on it. Uh, on the one hand, he is either drawing a distinction between the physical and the eternal. He's saying, okay, sure, your stomach is made for food, but all of that is a, is a physical matter. But your body is made for the Lord. That's a spiritual matter, right? That's that's one option of what he's saying the other option is actually that god will destroy both was a continuation of their of their slogan that was helping them justify their sexual behavior so they're saying it like this they're saying the stomach's made food and food's made for the stomach but it's all going to go away so who cares what i do with my body who cares how i treat my body right now who cares if i have some extra sex god's going to do away with all this physical stuff it's not going to matter right and he's saying look Even if all of that is true, you are not not the owner of your body. So your body, and we're going to see more of this in in a second, he talks about your body as a temple for the Holy Spirit. Your body is owned by God who has bought it and redeemed it and loves it. He says, your stomach may be made for food and food for your stomach. There may be physical aspects of your sexuality, but you are owned by the Lord. You are for him, for his glory, for his worship, right? And again, he's not saying this because he's just trying to ruin all your fun. He's saying this is the right way to live that will actually lead to your benefit. This is what will build you up and change you for your betterment. And then in verse 14, he literally is gonna state the whole gospel. I'm gonna read 14 again so you can see it. The, the, The hope of the gospel now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. See, in Romans 1 16 it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the, Greek, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So what is it saying there? What is the power of God, right? God is all powerful, right? God can stab his fingers and create, right? God can do whatever he wants to do. That's not what that is talking about the power of God or the righteousness of God is a reference to how on earth can God do the most impossible thing that could ever be done, which is take you in your sin and somehow reconcile you to him. That is the single most powerful thing. Uh, If you remember our Romans study, when we were going through Romans, Paul literally says, we know that God is all powerful, that he can create all things and do anything he wants. And yet the most powerful thing that he ever did was saving you. That is the impossible it is more impossible for you to be in heaven because you have sin than it was for God to create everything. That's how impossible it is. And he's saying the power of God is put on display in the fact that he can save you, right? And it's referenced here with the resurrection because what is the hope of the gospel? The hope of the gospel is this. Christ did the thing you can't do. Not only lived a perfect life, but after he died, he came back from death. He did the impossible thing, right? And our hope is because we are in Christ, because we are attached to Christ, that in his resurrection, we will also be resurrected. See, because as it stands, you should just die and that's it. Game over. That's what happens because of your sin. But the gospel, the hope of the gospel is that because of God's power to reconcile you to himself, you'll rise again. You'll be made alive. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are parts of Christ? Shall I then take away the parts of Christ uh, and make them parts of a prostitute? Far from it. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The Bible tells us that when a husband and wife sleep together, that they are one flesh. They are bonded together. They are attached to each other right and see here's the thing when the husband and wife attach to each other they they get all of it. they get the good and the bad that's why in our in the vows we say for better or for worse see because when you marry someone you are attaching not just to their good traits but to their bad ones you're getting all their baggage all their sin everything that comes with it right i always say to my wife that we are sinners in close proximity It means when I'm doing bad, I'm going to elbow her first, right? She's the closest person to me, so she gets to see the worst parts of me, right? And what what he's doing is he's using this reference of sexual unity, and he's saying that this is supposed to be a thing between a husband and a wife. It's also supposed to represent the church to God, to Christ, right? That they're supposed to be that close, attached to each other, right? Because that's what the hope of the gospel is in, that we're attached to Christ. But here's what's happening. When you live a sexually immoral life, you are attaching Christ, who you're supposed to be attached to, to these evil behaviors. You're now bringing all of this baggage, all of this sin into your relationship with Jesus. That should make you sad. And, And honestly, if you think about it in context of a marriage, it makes sense and it should make you sad. When you think about being married and bringing with you that, that bags now I don't I don't want to beat anybody up it's not about being perfect it's not that you've never sinned before um but it's it's different to say yeah I I have this past I have these things I've dealt with that's different than saying no that's part of my marriage right now that's something I'm living in that's something I'm currently bringing along for the ride right that's that's not elbowing each other on accident that's giving the people's elbow when they're not ready for it right That is a different kind of problem. And and here's the thing you got to see. Corinth is an especially sexually immoral place. There's a correlation here to our current society. And here's the thing. In Corinth, prostitutes would have been a temple thing. It would have been a pagan worship act. So if you were being sexually immoral in Corinth, you were actively worshiping a false god. We are literally doing that in our culture. Like we don't attach it as religiously we're not like no you have to go to the temple and that's where you like look at pornography no we're actually just worshiping the sex itself it's the same exact thing we are worshiping an idol that we think is going to fulfill us sexual gratification and we are putting that in the place of god verse 16 and verse 18 together there's this indication that somehow sexual immorality is the worst sin I struggle to um explain the passage of it being the, the sin that's within the body because um you know we have there's some wild drugs out there right like th- there's some stuff that that is that will kill your body okay so it's hard for me to necessarily walk through that here's what i know this is certainly the most universal idol in the world in in human history it is certainly the thing that all of human history has struggled with the most drastically Forever, right? And it is definitely the idol that our culture is currently grappling with. To what extent will we allow ourselves as a culture and as a society to worship this above God? Right? And so we see that and, and in Second Corinthians five seventeen, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person's a new creation, the old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. See, you've been washed, you've been justified, you've been sanctified. The question is, are you still having these childish desires and attitudes? Are you still having these childish actions and sins? Are you attaching yourself to the things of the world? Are you, with your body, both in the drama of daily life and in the quiet places, are you responding to things like the world responds to them? Or are you looking more and more like Christ every single day because? You are walking with the Holy Spirit. In verses 19 and 20, he literally gives the thesis for this entire section. I'm going to read them again. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought for a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Your body is a temple that God wants to live in and reside with you. The glory of God is supposed to be a part of you. Listen, if you go back and read the Old Testament, one of the worst things, literally Israel gets exiled for 70 years for this, is that they brought idols into the temple. That is literally your sin in your own life. You're supposed to be a temple of God, and yet your sin is you bringing idols into God's presence in your own body and worshiping worshiping them in a place that's supposed to be only for the worship of God. That is a violation of everything that we were designed to be. It says don't do that because you are not your own. You were bought. You were saved. Give glory to God. Praise Him. Listen, when we give glory to God, that is just spreading His name. That is basically telling the world, God saved me. God changed me. It's telling, telling the world in our actions. Telling the world in the way we behave with each other, telling the world in the way that we behave at work, telling the world through song, telling the world in in the fact that we spend time with God in prayer and in our quiet times and reading our Bibles. It is just spreading the name of God through our actions in every moment of every day. That is how we glorify God. Attached to Christ and not to the world. Are you reacting to the world around you the same way as the world tells you to react? Or does any part of your reaction resemble Christ? Resemble what's in this book? That's what I want you to ask yourself this week.